Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies, and more. I'm your host, Max Bowen. The Panic is a five-issue apocalyptic comic series on comicsology, and it is quickly drawing in with deep characters and a very gripping story. So I just had to speak with series creator and writer Neil Clyde for this episode. We talk about the series' origin, which began as a novel set amid September 11, 2001. We look at how the story was updated and adapted for a comic format, and what had to be changed during this process. Neil shares the theme of the loss of control and security, and how they're used in the series. We dive into the different characters and how they interact as they try to save themselves and learn what happened. I want to um, kind of open with uh, the themes of, of this series, which is really like the loss of control and security. And certainly, we'll talk about like what happens in just a little bit. But how do you sort of like grasp like those feelings and kind of like dilute them in into the story? I think it's evolved over over the years. Uh, you know, when I first started writing the Panic, uh, I started it as a novel. It was really post nine eleven. I was living in New York. There was this sort of great unknown, right? You know, we just had our, the towers fell and there was this sense of just like, what happens now? The world was changing. But for me, it was also about folks who were kind of down there. I, I was lucky enough to be uptown, but the folks who were down there, the folks who were trying to get out of the towers, you know, stories that you heard over the years, uh, over that year specifically, and also mainly of stories folks who were in the subway there were there were a lot of people who were underground didn't really know what was going on some were evacuated some happened to you know get to the next station but there's that moment of just like what the hell is happening and for me I really thought about all the moments in my life of that loss of control that loss of really something happening and you really don't know what happens um you know I lived in Israel for a year I have friends who have been there and you know there have been restaurant bombings and suicide, you know, buses blowing up. And there's that moment of just like, what the hell just happened? And I find that over, you know, that was sort of like the catalyst for the story, but over the last almost 20 years, as I've kind of evolved it, um, it's really kind of become its own thing because I feel like we've all lost control a little bit, you know, especially here in America you know, whether politically or, or racially or, or sexually or, or, you know, in terms of, of gender or religion or, or just our basic human freedoms, some of us have felt this sort of like, or even with the pandemic, there's this just moment of like, I can't control the things that are happening around me. And how do I, as a human being, uh, deal with it individually, but also deal with it within a group atmosphere, right? So that really was kind of the impetus for the story. And as I mentioned, you know, it started uh, after 9-11, it was really about more about terrorism. It was about folks trapped after a terror attack. And over the years, as things have happened in the country, the it's shifted a little bit more to like science gone wrong, but the basic motivations are about humanity. Well, you know, how does humanity come together? Uh, how do strangers come together in the dark after some something happens? You know, will we, band together and put all the shit aside, all the things that divide us as a people, or will we kind of do our own thing? And that's really kind of what my story is about. It's about grappling with the unknown, uh, both as an individual and as a group. 
And I definitely felt that a lot, especially in the early days of COVID, because there was so much just unknown. Like, is it, like initially, they uh, people were saying, "Oh, just you know, two weeks to slow the spread, and we get back to normal." And then it just continued, and it kept getting worse and worse. And there was definitely this feeling of uncertainty. Like, I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to keep my job. I don't know if I'm going to keep my home. There was a lot of very like worst case scenarios being like chucked around like left and right. So I definitely can relate in that sense too. I, I think, and I think that hasn't ended. I mean, you know, things have gotten a little easier. Maybe we've gotten more used to it, but like COVID's still here. Uh, you know, the, the country is in an economic downturn. Um, people's, like I said, people's basic human rights are being challenged, uh, you know, in a court of law. And there's definitely going to always be that sense of, I don't know what's going to happen next. And how, how do I, as an individual, kind of handle that? You know, who can I reach out to? Who can be sort of my support to kind of get through this? Or am I just going to kind of deal with myself? And do I not want to take an extended hand because that person has different political, religious, racial, sexual beliefs than I, you know, general beliefs than I do? So that is definitely something that I'm still grappling with, grappling with. Like I have children, I have a mortgage, you know, and there's always that fear of like, what if I lose my job or what if? one of them gets sick or what if I get sick? Um, you know, uh, one of the interesting things that happened kind of while I was writing this book and while I was going through the pandemic was I was diagnosed with lymphoma. Like I, I had cancer for about a year and I went through chemo and there's that moment of just like, well, not only am I dealing with the pandemic and not only am I dealing with just economic and, you know, just sort of like this fear of unknown, but also like what's going to happen to me? Um, and, you know, having to basically say to myself, like, am I, you know, I'm now immunocompromised. What happens if I go to the store? Will I get sick? Will it be worse than what everyone else has? And so there's definitely, uh, it's still here and it's something everyone can kind of relate to. So. Wow. Jeez. How's your uh, health now? Thank God. Thank God. I'm, I'm in remission. Um, staying healthy, staying safe. Staying healthy and staying safe. That's the best I can say right that's, now. That's really good to hear. That's very good to hear. Neil. How do you cope, though, with that loss of control, both in like the grand sense with like this global pandemic and the, and, and the, uh, the economic downturn, but also your very like at-home loss of control with your own health? Um, I mean, look, there's a lot of anxiety. I, I wouldn't say that it's every day is, you know, as roses and, and champagne. You know, you deal with it day to day and you try to surround yourself with people that can support you. Um, you know, thank God I have an amazing family and a great circle of friends and supporters and you get through it. Right. And you just kind of every day sort of deal with it on as best you can. You try not to obsess about things you can't control. Um, but from the book's perspective, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, you need to, you can't do this alone. You can't get out of uh, a train crash, which is what the book is about. You can't get out from underground by yourself sometimes. Sometimes you, some people can, don't, don't get me wrong. There are people who are self-sufficient and can handle things on their own and don't need anyone else. Most humans need a support circle. And whether you're sick, whether you're you know, broke, whether you're unemployed, whatever it is, whether you're in just a life-threatening danger, you get through it easier when you have the help of someone else. 
Exactly. Let's dive into the story now. So as you mentioned, uh, this one is is uh, all about a train crash. It's beneath the Hudson River. It just kind of happens out of nowhere, just as this... I don't think this is really a spoiler, but this very, like, man-made apocalypse happens. We see, we see some government folks pushing a button. Everything goes south. The train yep. crashes, and these 10 people are trapped on the train, now have to rely on each other because it, com- because it becomes very clear help is not coming. They're on their own. And these folks could not be any more different. you got main character, Annie Delgado. She's a Black Lives Matter supporter, a social activist. And then on the other side, you have Rocco Galatori, who is um, who wears his MAGA hat and proudly. How do you come up with the different uh, personalities for the story? And how do they just kind of mesh together? You know, when I, when I wrote the book, one of the things that I wanted to make sure was that we're telling a story that's very authentically New York, right? Um, you know, I ride the train. I haven't for a while just because of the pandemic. But, but when I was riding the train, like you meet people and you sit with people from all walks of life. And that to me was really important to show not just like I'm a, I'm a white Jew. I'm a le- left-leaning lib- liberal. Uh, I have a very specific point of view of the world. And I wanted to be careful and make sure that not all of my characters had the same point of view as I did. Because I think if we were all white, you know, Jewish left-leaning liberals, there wouldn't be any tension. We'd all band together and, you know, kind of do what we have to because we all get along. It's when you have people from diverse walks of life with different ideologies and political and religious and racial opinions, um, that's where you know, the powder kit comes into play, right? You definitely have, you know, I've been out in the world and I've seen that red hat and I definitely have a very visceral reaction to it. Uh, there are conservatives, I'm sure, who, when they're faced with, you know, things that I bring to the table, have the same sort of reaction to that. So what I wanted to do was try to put myself into the head of those folks who did not have the same role as view as I did and work with my team, with the edit, you know, uh, Mariah McCord, who's the editor on the book, and Amanda Stevens, who is our diversity and inclusion consultant, to ensure that the stories that we were telling that were not my own were told uh, authentically and sensitively, and were told in a way that really made them feel true. I didn't want to go through it and like pick off one of each. That's kind of not what I did, but I did want to, you know, show people from different sort of backgrounds, different, uh, even you know, two two of our. Uh, Riders, the Clark sisters, are from a different city. They're from Detroit, where I'm actually from originally. Um, and so I wanted to sort of like create a mix that felt real and felt like these are people who may not agree on the next steps. And I felt that you were fair with your depictions too, because like you could have made the MAGA guy the enemy. And instead, he's not. He's just, you know, a very different perspective, and not everyone really likes him. In fact, actually, one of the other characters, um, Saul uh, Polacek, he just tears him apart at one point. But I felt that you were very like balanced with this. You didn't like, you know, take one side or the other. Was that tough though? It was tough. I mean, look, I have a lot of friends in my community who are staunch conservatives and they voted for Trump. They're, you know, they definitely believe in a lot of the the political opinions of, of the, you know, of, of that side of the fence. And a lot of it is just me sort of listening to them and saying like, okay, so this is what this guy kind of, what I'm hearing from this person, this is what I'm hearing from that person. And trying to put myself or put Rocco in that 
in that person's boots and basically say, okay, uh, I may not believe with this. This may be a shitty thing to say, but it's something that somebody actually believes. But what I also wanted to be careful was, was not to go sort of too far over because there, you know, one of the things that we, Andrea and I wanted to make sure that we came across in this tale is don't judge a book by its cover, right? Somebody who you get a first impression of, right? Like if I see somebody in, in the MAGA hat and that red hat, my, like I said, I'm going to get that visceral reaction and just kind of feel one way about them. But once I maybe talk to that person and listen to their opinions, I may realize, oh, that person actually believes this because of these reasons. And um, I wanted to sort of, I didn't want to both sides it. You know, I still have my personal opinions and my personal beliefs, but I did want to make sure that if I was telling an authentic tale with authentic people, that somebody with beliefs that are, you know, diametrically opposed to mine still is not a villain per se. They just have their opinions, whatever they may be. And so I wanted, it's, it's a very tricky line to, to cross. It's a very tricky line to, sorry, tricky line to walk. And that's what I wanted to be careful about. And I, you know, I don't know that I was successful. I hope I was. Um, some people may kind of get to the end of this thing and feel that I told it poorly. And some people may feel like, hey, you were sort of spot on. Uh, I only can tell the story the way I can tell it, you know? Exactly, exactly. Now, as you mentioned earlier, you initially wrote this as a novel to take place after uh, 9-11. And mm -hmm. the current story, though, takes place around the height of COVID. Um, what was it like adapting this both for like a comic script, but also to this like different time period? The key thing about it, let's take those two one at a time. The adapting from prose to comics is, is difficult because obviously with prose, you've got a little bit more room to play with dialogue and get into people's heads and you really have to sort of pick what you're showing, you know, in the limited space, uh, the limited landscape of a comic book page. And so you kind of have to really simmer it down to like the key points, right? These are the key things that I need to get across. These are the key pieces of dialogue that need to happen. And this is the key action that needs to happen, right? Obviously uh, within, you know, the space of a panel, I can only show certain amount of people plus the, you know, the dialogue to make sure that the art is being seen and the dialogue is, is not, you know, overwhelming the page. And, and Andrea, you know, the artist, my, my artist and co-author on the book was really great and pivotal and basically calling me on my bullshit and saying, Hey, you're trying to get too much into this page. Like we need to kind of scale back. We need to maybe remove one or two people or scale the dialogue back. And so a lot of it was about um, brevity. It was about the economy of, the comic book, you know, page, the, the landscape of the page and figuring out how to really adapt, you know, the 300, 400 page book into 22 pages at a time. And that was, that's tough, but you know, that's what editors are really helpful with. And sometimes you just have to kind of kill your dar darlings and say, look, this is really, these are the key notions we need to get across. And this is how we need to move the action along. Um, in terms of shifting it from, you know, 9-11 to now, um, I think one of the key thing, help, helpful things for that was that I really didn't start scripting it until now, right? So it was written as a novel back then, and then it kind of like languished for a while, but I didn't start scripting the panic as we know it uh, until we were within the panic, until we were in COVID itself, like halfway through. And so... I was already sort of in that state of mind and frame of reference. And it was very easy for me to say, 
okay, this is sort of the reality we're living in. And as I go through it and as I tell the story, it's less about, oh, the tower's falling or us coming together, you know, or things about, you know, flight restrictions or racial profile. I mean, there's still a little bit of racial profiling in it. Um, but it was more about, hey, we're sort of just getting out. We're still dealing with one terrible thing that's happening to us. And we're already kind of all on edge. Um, how do we now deal it with, with this new layer on top? You know, this unknown event happening and this terrible disaster happening where people are dying and we're stuck alone and nobody's coming. And so it's just going through with that eye and basically saying, like, these are the moments that we can kind of bring into our reality and sort of touch upon that without letting it overwhelm the piece and basically take over because it could very easily have been a COVID story. Um, and that's not what I wanted. I really still wanted it to be about humanity. At, you know, um, I tell people that when, when folks ask me, you know, how do I best sum up the story? It's kind of the walking dead without the zombies, right? So the walking dead as a, as a TV series, as a comic book series, it's about humanity, right? How does, how does humanity uh, come together and deal with, you know, tragedy and, you know, a new world uh, and put aside all the shit and kind of survive. And that's what the panic's about too. It's about how do we survive as a people? And so whether it's a pandemic or whether there are murder hornets or whether, you know, Florida is falling off the face of the, the country or whatever, you know, something happening. Um, it's really about 10 people stuck in a terrible situation, not knowing what that's, why they're in that situation and putting aside all the shit to get out. I had really forgotten about the uh, uh, about the murder hornets. I remember that was a big deal, and then they just kind yeah. of vanished. I thought, what happened to the murder hornets? But that's for the best, I think. I do want to be back. The, uh, probably, probably, or, be back. or it'll be something else. It'll be like sharks with wings or some damn nightmare. Um, yep. Anywho, I do want to ask about apocalyptic scenarios. Um, now, one thing I've heard is that with these kinds of stories, it's less about what kills the world and more about the situation that the people are found in, whether it's a, a flood or zombies or what have you. But what role does your apocalypse play aside from just like killing everyone, basically? So, uh, you know, it's funny because when you're dealing with any comic book series, right, um, everybody kind of wants to know the full story right off the bat. And the panic is a five issue miniseries. It's about, it's about the people trapped in the event without knowing what the event is. And I'll sort of like, I'll just kind of tease the uh, spoil this. You, you don't know what it is by the time you're done with these five issues, you're not going to know what it is. There's a larger story that we are hoping to get to. Um, but like with any comic book series or novel series or what have you, or even a movie, you know, film series, um, it's about people supporting it. Right. So we want to tell, you know, the idea is eventually to tell, let's say, 36 to 40 issues in total that really kind of like take them out of the situation they're in, follow them as they break into the new world and figure out what happened. And then eventually sort of, you know, the, the plot, the narrative itself will really reveal what happened. But for me, for these five issues, it's not important. Uh, like it doesn't make a difference whether it's, you know, a nuclear bomb or planes hitting a tower or zombies or what have you. The important thing is how do we get out? How do we save ourselves? How do we escape the situation and work together? And that's really what the, series, the first five issues are about. The first five issues are about these strangers trying to survive and trying to work together to survive. And then our hopes 
uh, you know, Andrea and myself and Comixology, everyone over here are hoping that, you know, it's supported enough. People pre-order it and come and buy and are interested enough so we can do volume two and volume three and tell that full story, tell that story of what it is, you know, what actually happened. Why are the, why do these people, why did their train crash? I will sort of tell you it's more of a science gone wrong than it is, which we sort of tease with that button that you see sort of at the beginning of issue one. Um, it's not zombies. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, what we need is people to support us so we can get there. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, though, Neil, I'm the kind of guy who likes to know all the details. So not knowing this is going to drive me bonkers, but I'll still read it. I'll still well, it's read like it. A TV. It's like a TV show, right? Like Lost, right? Yep. You watch Lost. Season one's not going to tell you everything, right? You want to get to to the season series finale, the series finale, or even halfway through, right? You want to get to a point where it's like, oh, that's what's happening. Oh, that, that you want the closure and I get it, but it's not coming. It's not coming until, until maybe season three. So keep reading. I got you. I got you. Keep buying, keep reading, keep telling people about the book. You're very good at this marketing thing, Neil. You're very good at this. I've, I've had, I've been doing this for a couple of years now. Yeah, So you learn from Greg. But I read that this is also your first take on horror, and I got to say, you do a really good job with it. But what made you want to go in this direction in uh, the first place? And did you have some kind of like learning to do or some horror books to read to kind of get yourself into that genre? Yeah, you know, the last couple of years, I think you're seeing a lot of really great horror comics come out in the world or, you know, thrillers. Um, And I've been spending the last couple of years, I, I wrote a graphic novel for my daughter. It's like an adventure graphic novel from Dark Horse. It's called Saber. That's a little bit more bright and adventurous and heroic and what have you. And before that, a lot of my, the things that I've been working on have been sort of in that vein, very like YA, you know, young adult, middle grade. um, And then, you know, trying to do superhero stuff and what have you. And I've never really done anything dark. And um, I kind of wanted to play in that, in that landscape a little bit to see if I could do it. Um, As a writer, you're always trying to push yourself into new, uh, to new areas and try to push yourself to, to get new uh, skills. And I guess I was inspired by some of the things I was reading. I read lock and key. I read that like once a year by Joe Hill and Gabe Rodriguez, which is a fantastic book. And then I've been reading uh, the nice house on the lake uh, from DC black label. Um, and this sort of tense thriller kind of narrative is something that I've never really had a chance to do before. And so uh, with the panic, I really wanted to stretch those legs. I wanted to try something different while I'm already also, you know, balancing some other stuff. You know, I'm working on a superhero thing. I'm working on uh, crime drama right now. And so for me, it's about never letting myself get complacent with the thing that I do and trying to tell all sorts of stories to all sorts of people. And also in the end of the day, do something that is this comic that I want to read that I want to tell, you know? And so that's really what panic is. It's a story I've always wanted to read. And so I'm going to make it. You did a damn good job in this, sir. I was absolutely caught right off the bat. Nice house on the lake. I'm also reading that. I love that story because that just, that one just like explodes. Were there other horror writers that you kind of took a cue from either getting like ideas or how to frame the atmosphere of the whole story? I take a lot of my cues from movies and television, to be honest with you. I watched um, The Taking of Pelham 123 um, and a lot of like early 1970s disasters, like The Towering Inferno, 
um, some like a bunch of disaster movies. Like that's kind of where my head was at for this. It wasn't really so much to write. I mean, I read a lot of Stephen King. I read a lot of Joe Hill. Um, I'm not what I would call like a compulsive horror uh, consumer, to be honest with you. I don't really love scary movies uh, and I don't read a lot of horror books. Um, a lot of it came from, like I said, the comics that I've been reading, just these sort of like thriller that you're seeing in the landscape right now. Um, but for the most part, it's just been, it's just been my own sort of motivation, right? Like I wouldn't say like when I write a character, I'm influenced by people around me, right? So a lot of the characters are influenced by people in my life, people that I've seen, people that I've observed, um, and it's also kind of driven, this story particularly is driven by me as a New Yorker, right? Like a lot of the things you're seeing are things that I've thought about while I've been in a subway or trapped in an elevator, not trapped, but in an elevator on the way down somewhere. Like, like it's the what if. It's like, I'm really kind of putting my life into the hands of a scenario or a situation that I have no control of. What if the train stops and I'm here underground for seven hours? What if my elevator stops or falls? what if X, Y, Z, right? So that's kind of what I do, as many writers do, um, is really kind of think of the scenario that would challenge me and challenge the people in my life or the people that I've observed, and then really craft that as a narrative going forward, right? Here's how I believe myself or people around me or those I've observed would react to this situation. And all the conclusions drawn by myself and Andrea are, are our own, right? People may argue with them people may see at the end of the story like oh that would never happen you know um it was interesting because right before the first issue came out there was a subway shooting in brooklyn and um it was you know widely in the news and people were talking about it and there was a moment of just like should we be putting out a book where a train crashes right now and what have you and what i was happy to hear when the shooting happened was most of the reporting was about the people who stepped up, right? The doctor in the next car who helped, you know, heal people who were shot, the people who were saving one another and doing their best to, you know, mitigate disaster. And that's what you would hope for. You would hope for people like me, like you, rising to the occasion and doing the right thing. The panic, that's the other story. That is the, uh, that is basically what what would happen if that doesn't happen, right? Where the, we're the moment of just like, all right, you want to go left? We're going to go right. And um, that's the story that we're looking to tell. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the best example of nailing the horror aspect is, I won't spoil this, folks, but the scene with Alice in issue two. Mm -hmm. That one is downright terrifying. But, uh, right. So there's definitely, and that is kind of the perfect example of like looking at all sides of the situation because. You have one subway car where you have 10 people who are kind of left alive. And there were some, definitely some deaths in that subway car. But then you have this group of survivors who have each other to sort of rally around, right? You know, to push each other up and basically say, we're going to get through this. And then you've got a car that's one or two cars over where there's one person alone, four hours, in the dark, with a bunch of bodies, with no one to support her. And that to me was sort of like her story was her, that moment was important. It wasn't just a, a, Hey, I want to do this to scare some people or I want to do this because it's cool or what have you. I really want to show like, Hey, you know, Annie and Jeff and, and all those folks, they got really lucky because they were together 
as opposed to Alice, poor Alice, who was alone and hungry and frightened and may have cracked. And, you know, showing those two sides of the coin were important to, to the story to show like the difference that could that one car can make. I'm curious if you were in the situation, if you were on the train, not that it wants to happen to you, but if you were on the train, it crashes, you're stuck with these strangers, would you be just like, okay, guys, we're going to work together and make this happen? Or would you be like, hmm, how can I get out of this and get back to my family? So I, I couldn't tell you. Like, you won't know what's going to happen until you're, until you're down there in the dark, right? Would you put yourself in the way of a, uh, of a gun to save somebody if you know that you've got a family waiting for you at home? I, I can't tell you that until I'm there. Um, I definitely think if my family was with me, I would do everything I could to protect them, uh, no matter the cost, right? Um, I would like to think that in an ideal world, I would step up and do the right thing, but I just don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And um, it's kind of an unfair question to ask anyone, you know, and, uh, because until you are in danger, until you are in, you're looking down the barrel of that gun or trapped under the ground, you just don't know how you're going to react. Um, the panic is sort of my guesswork. It's, I think this is how people would react. You know, some people who are great and some people who are shitty. Um, especially when, you know, you're put into that situation with people who you don't believe, uh, are there to help you or people who you actively hate. You know, one of the characters that you see at the end of issue two, uh, who comes in at the last page of issue two, that's going to become important in the next issue is this policeman, Lincoln McNeil. And, you know, when I was growing up, you know, people told me, hey, the policemen are your friends. Of course, again, white Jewish guy living in the suburbs, right? So for me, yeah, sure, the policemen are my friend. Not everybody can say that. There's people in various communities, not of my own, with various races and religions, not of my own, that have an active uh, prejudice or fear of the police. And you see that a little bit in issue three, like that moment of just like, how do I, how can I trust you? And I think that's important. I think that's an important part of the story, right? Just because somebody has a badge and a gun or somebody is in a position of authority doesn't mean that person is a leader or that person is the person you want to trust. And I think that adds to sort of the tension of any powder keg scenario. And, you know, if I was in a situation like this, I may be more uh, willing to put my hands in the hands of a cop than somebody who's African-American or uh, somebody who's been besieged by the police or have, have had moments in their lives where, uh, you know, the police have sort of not been somebody to look to for justice. Uh, and I don't know, you know, we tried to do that. And we use justice again. We tried to do that story justice here. We tried to drop him into the scenario, understanding that he could destabilize everything. And we'll see how it goes. All right. Now, you've mentioned Andrew Muti a couple times. Uh, they are your co-author and also did the art for, for the series. And I got to say, props to them because their art was so dark and terrifying and gripping. I'd like to ask how you two met and how'd you get working on this project together? Yeah, um, so I met Andrea through Chip Mosher, who is sort of the ringleader at Comixology Originals. We had already kind of greenlit the book, and we were trying to figure out who was going to draw it. 
And he recommended Andrea to me. And uh, Andrea has done some amazing work on some fantastic horror books out there. He's done uh, Maniac New York for Aftershock and Parasomnia for Dark Horse. And he's got this really great visceral uh, painted illustration style that really tells, helps tell the story better than I can tell it alone. I mean, we talk about the ensemble cast of the book. Uh, and whenever we're talking about it, we add two parts, uh, two more cast members to our book. The first is the sense of fear that hopefully gets driven through the narrative. That's definitely part of the ensemble, but color is very important to our book. Um, and if you look at the pages, you know, we're talking about a comic that easily could have been 10 people in the dark, uh, you know, for five issues, which could be very much a lot of neutrals and blacks and browns and what have you. And he uses a lot of vivid colors to really drive the story along, to convey emotion, convey fear and paranoia, convey anger. Um, red is used sparingly uh, in, until we get to that scene with Alice where it's suddenly just everywhere. Um, and he really is a master at using color and movement to drive the sense of paranoia and tension. And um, I'm really thankful to have him as a co-author and to have him as my partner. Um, and I really hope we get to do more together. Definitely, definitely. That that was what I got right uh, right off the bat was like, and I'm probably phrasing this badly, but the simplicity of the color, you know, it was a lot of grays and greens and blues. And then, like I said, you had like the splashes of red here and there with like the MAGA hat, the blood, of course, after uh, after the train crashes. You could you could use that all over the place. Instead, it's kind of like here and there, here and there. I'm curious if if there was a if there was a lot of uh, back and forth on this, or did Andrew just kind of like nail it like right off the bat? Um, I mean, we've had we had some discussions. There were moments where you know I asked for changes. I tried to look. He's he's an amazing talent, and I put a lot of my trust and faith in him, and he definitely delivers. Um, there was definitely a lot of back back and forth on the construction of the pages, as I mentioned earlier. There were times in my script where I called for, hey, there's six people in this circle and you're looking down on them. And by the way, here's like 40 pages on the pa uh, 40 words per panel. And his response was like, how are you planning on getting all this into one panel? Um, and I'm like, this is not my first time at the rodeo. I've done it before. But sometimes when you're writing something, you're like, oh, wait, he's right. I have to really amend this. Um, and I think the key thing is that uh, comics like our subway crash is a trust exercise. Uh, you have to really trust one another to really make, uh, make the pro, you know, the, the, the final product thing and to sort of escape this kind of morass of like, are we doing the right thing? Is this the right way to do this? And the two of us really worked well in tandem. And there were moments where we argued, there were moments where he wanted something and I didn't think it was right. Or I wanted something and he didn't think it was right. But at the end of the day, it was really about the narrative. It was about the story, right? Both of us put our egos aside and basically said, is this what's right for our tale? And um, I think trusting in one another from a script perspective, from an art perspective, and I also lettered the book. Um, so like kind of being able to work in so closely and in tandem, I think made this probably one of the best working relationships that I've had in a long time. Do you think this helped kind of grow you as a writer, having someone else to work with on this book? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, having having a co-author, having an editor, especially. Um, basically, I, I'm very big on having somebody to call me on my shit, to have somebody to basically say, like, 
great, Neil, your precious words are fantastic, but have you thought about changing the this or adjusting this or maybe removing this panel or putting it here so that the flow is better? I, I actually just co-wrote a book with my friend Rance Hosley. We did a, a graphic novel called Screaming for Vengeance, which is based on the Judas Priest album. It's coming out in September. Uh, it's this really cool sci-fi book. And um, he and I sometimes argued like, you know, hey, you want to, you know, we want to remove this. We want to add this. We want to change this dialogue. And there were moments of conversation where it was like, well, I really feel like it's important to the, to the story to keep it in. Or he felt, well, the flow is better because we do it this way. And I think at the end of the day, if you approach it with that sense of, I'm going to put my ego aside and it's not really about me. It's about the story and it's about the characters. Um, you're going to end up in the right place. And I think as a writer, having someone to throw things against the wall and having somebody to come at you from another angle and say, Hey, your script is fantastic. But from an art perspective, from a narrative perspective, from a ongoing perspective, here's how we might adjust it to make it even better. Here's how we might adjust it to make it really truly sing. And I think that's important. And I think when you, you know, you look at a lot of mediums uh, like collaborative mediums, like film, like television, like comics, um, there's definitely this great community of people coming together to make a story, to create, to birth something to the world that wasn't there before. And as long as everyone approaches it with that same sense, that same sense of, look, all we want to do is make something that's great. And we don't want to really, you know, we're not here to, so some people do want their egos out front and center, but for those that don't, for those creative teams that really just kind of come together to make something fantastic. Um, it makes you better as part of that machine. It makes you a better writer, a better artist, a better letterer, a better editor, right? And so every project I work on, I learn a little something from it. And I come back and I take it to the next one and say, okay, here's how Andrea and I did this together. When I go to my next project, um, what am I going to take from that? And what am I going to learn? And what am I going to deploy when I do the next book? Do you think this is a one-off for you in terms of working with horror? Or do you want to keep doing more of these? I'd like to, look, I'd love to continue the panic, right? We, you know, we definitely want to tell more of the story. You know, Andrea and I have tons more to say. Um, and if I just, you know, can sort of see the story all the way through, I'd be a happy man. Um, but yeah, you know, there's definitely other horror thriller ideas in the back of my skull that I'd love to get out in the world. I've pitched some, some have flown, some have not. Um, my next project that I just started writing is more grounded. It's a more... Uh, traditional contemporary crime story. Um, but it's also about humans. It's about, you know, a, a community as well. Um, so, you know, that may come down the road. It may not. Um, my hope is that we'll get all these five issues out and then put out the collected edition from Dark Horse Comics in the fall with a panic. And um, people will like it. And people will say, hey, you know, we don't love where you've left it. We want to know more. Um, uh, one of the great things about, I think, these five issues is that you can leave it where it is, right? You can leave yourself walking out of here with questions, and that's okay, because the main story, the story of their journey through the tunnel, their journey to get out, will have been told. Um, there's more to the tale, more we'd like to get to, but if this is all we get to tell, I think that's fine. Um, I'm a very big believer that you don't have to know everything, right? Like, Look at The Sopranos. The Sopranos is sort of like the best example of that. You know, that fade to black, well, not that hard cut to black at the end of the series finale where it's like David Chase basically saying, all right, we're done. You've 
you've, you've heard it all. Um, and that's fine. And that's sometimes how I believe stories are. Um, so we may leave it and then I'll come back and hopefully I'll get to do some more horror. But, you know, it's really sort of the, the luck of the dice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Personally, I really hope the story can can continue because, you know, I want to know everything. I want to know what happens. I want to know how it happens. I want to know, like, what's next. Like, is this just, like, in New York? Is it beyond that? Is it everywhere else? Um, but that's just kind of how I am. Do you think there's anything for folks to kind of take away from, like, a morality perspective or, like, a lesson perspective? I mean, yeah. I think, like I said, you know, it's 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 about it's about humanity, right? It's about humans and the sense of just, do we need other people? Uh, do we, you, will you judge a book by its cover? Will you take a hand of someone whose beliefs you may not align with? Um, I think there's a lot to take away from this. You know, um, I'm not very preachy. I don't really want to be obvious and draw those lines. I think other people, you know, as they're reading this may take things from it that I did not. But for me, it was about that, you know, individual versus the group. It was about uh, the judgment of first impressions. It's about love a little bit, you know, and what happens when love turns into obsession. Um, I think there's a lot of lessons to be taken from this story. And once we get to the end, I'd be curious to hear the lessons other people take. Well, Neil, man, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate this. Again, loving the series, The Panic, folks. If you don't have it, get yourself some Comixology. It's like six bucks a month, and you get a lot for the money. But, Neil, uh, where can folks go to learn more about you and uh, check out the rest of your work? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Neil Clyde. That's N-E-I-L-K-L-E-I-D. I've got a bookshop link somewhere floating out there with links to all my books and graphic novels and comics and all that good stuff. Uh, and, um, you can always find my work on Amazon, obviously, uh, especially the panic, which you can find via comiXology. Um, I'm out there. Find me. Come talk about comics. Hey, this is singer songwriter and mental health advocate, Stephanie Mathias. Be sure to check out my single hero side available on all platforms now and listen to citywide blackout your home for the best indie artists. And that does it for this episode. Big thanks to Neil for joining me, and definitely check out The Panic, available only on Comixology. I have been loving this series, and I cannot wait for the rest of the issues. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout, and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax.yahoo.com, and check out the show wherever you find podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.